Well, good morning, everyone. It's very good to see you on this Lord's Day. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 23 is where we're at. We're actually going to finish Luke chapter 23 today. And if you're wondering, when do you think we'll finish Luke? My goal is, I'll spare it and Lord willing, to be done by the 15th of July. So that, that, if you're counting, that's about, not counting this Sunday, three more Sundays. So we'll have about three Sundays to work through chapter 24. And then our wonderful little project with Luke will be completed. Sad to see it go, to be quite honest with you. I always think as I get along in years, this, this could be the last time I ever preach through Luke again. And it kind of breaks my heart. So we've done well. We thank God for his help every step of the way. Luke chapter 23 Beginning in verse 50, verse 50, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together and seek the help that we need from our God and Father. Father, we thank you once again that we were reminded this week, as the psalmist tells us, that you say to the waters, this far they should go and no more. We admit God and very much feel our absolute dependence on you as we come to these verses this morning. The mind of a mere man as I am is far too frail, far too weak to do what is needed. So we have to ask you, Father, to awaken our minds as we listen. You would stir our hearts that we might hear from you the living God and believe. Forgive us this morning if our hearts are pleased and troubled only by what pleases and troubles us with no regard for Christ. This, Father, is our humble prayer. This is our great need. And God, this is our deep expectation. And so we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. The gospel is the foundation of everything we do as individuals and as a church. The gospel declares that we are sinners, that each of us falls short of God's good standard every day. However, the gospel also declares that Jesus Christ has accomplished all that was necessary if we are to be reconciled to God. We cannot add or subtract anything from our standing with God by something we do or something we fail to do. We must always then be accepted before a holy God for Jesus' sake, or we will not be accepted at all. Thereby thereby believing that when God accepts sinners and saints, whether they are adults or young people, he is in fact accepting Christ. But not everybody believes this. 
And some who profess faith in Christ may not rely on this as the sole basis for their acceptance and good standing with God every day. This week in our family devotions before bedtime, we discussed the dangers of positive and negative human righteousness. You should have been there. It was fantastic. I think we had popsicles while we were doing this. The danger of positive human righteousness, which would make us determine that we are right with God or even move up the ladder of love from God by the false impression that good deeds somehow makes us even more acceptable to God. But God doesn't want nor accept making up for past sins by present goodness. And God doesn't want nor accept us making up for past sins through future obedience. That was positive human righteousness. Negative human righteousness, which is akin to self-righteousness or legalism, which one has their personal a list, of, a list of don'ts, and they're doing them quite well as far as they know. And they're prepared to approach God, look down, down on men and women on the basis of their A-list. So they have their A-list of things they approach God with. God, I've kept my purity. God, I've never experimented in homosexuality. God, I've never done drugs. I'm good on the web. I say that because today, so many think because they have, have done those things that there's no way that God could save them or even would help them. And even if he was kind enough to save them, he would never employ them into his service. Dear ones, there are many people who have kept their own A list, either externally or because of human pride. Human pride that just can't stand the way we look when we fail before the eyes of men. Okay, fine, they'll, they'll have a bit better run on earth. They'll look a bit cleaner on the outside before men. But what about eternity? And what about the God who knows all things and knows the heart? Sin does not hurt us as much as our own righteousness as we've been learning in the religious Pharisees. The word of God from the man of God, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are as polluted garments, useless. Well, this is very strong language. It's actually very much adult language that could counter our sin-filled tendencies of pride because it's not that good deeds are bad. If you know Romans, what was the take on Paul? Everybody or a lot of people were saying Paul was saying that you should do bad so that good may result. No one's saying that. So it's not that good deeds are bad and it's certainly that they shouldn't be done. It's just that we can never take them before the throne of God. So the question comes, why? Why can't we take them before the throne of God? I mean, I've worked very hard on my religious stuff. I'm a dis- I've disciplined myself. I've got up early. I've made lots of sacrifices. I'm all over the place. Just as a quick aside, don't you want to ask that person, is this Christianity or an exercise program? Because what you're doing says a whole lot like an exercise program. Why? Human pride, human self-importance, human religious tendencies and superiority can seep into everything. But we've got to answer the question, why? Why can't we take our good deeds before the throne of God? Well, because before the throne of God, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, behold him there, the risen lamb, our perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace who only saves and who only keeps saving by substitution and whose father accepts only one sacrifice for sin. God does not 
us, God doesn't ever want us to think that human righteousness, whether it's positive or negative, is good enough to reconcile us to him. No, God would want us to know and believe and glory that the only way to him and the only way to be accepted by him is through his son. That God in Christ was not counting men's sins against them, but counting them to Christ. Now that comes by way of a purposeful introduction that I would suggest to you that so much of Christendom needs to understand these days. We really need to understand, especially those of us who would say we are on the conservative side of Christianity. So this introduction was to explain to us why the Bible keeps coming back to Christ alone. I mean, this morning we're going to talk about the burial of Christ. And to be honest with you, that doesn't sound too exciting to me. I mean, let's talk about somebody's burial. In fact, we may be tempted if we're reading this on our own to just kind of hurry past this so we can get to the good stuff, the resurrection, you know, to kind of amp us up a bit like an energy drink, which do not work, by the way. But because of this, the theologians have said all along that the Bible is inspired, but not all of the Bible is equally inspiring. But what I want us to see on this Lord's Day is that God is very concerned that we know everything about Jesus Christ. So just think with me, in the past few months, we've talked about his supper, his prayer in the garden, his arrest, his trial, his beatings, his crucifixion, his death, and now we're going to talk about his burial. And in this account of the events that were part and parcel of the burial of Jesus, it is just one more strand of his life that comes together, one more fiber of the life of Jesus Christ attached to another fiber, attached to another fiber to the mighty strength of this true story that Luke has given us so that we might know the certainty of the truth as it is in Jesus since he's the only righteousness that we can have and that God will accept. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's so important as we look at the Bible, this is the way that we look at it. So first of all, then we should know that the burial of Jesus, beginning there in verse 50, the burial of Jesus wasn't an assumed certainty for two reasons. First of all, in in Roman law, the crucifixion of a criminal, and of course Jesus was condemned as a criminal, the crucifixion of a criminal was not the end of their humiliation. The humiliation of this condemned person was to follow them even past their death. So that they receive no proper burial and they receive absolutely no honor. And the release of the body depended completely on the mercy of the magistrate. So if no one came and asked for the body, the body, as we said last time, would just kind of hang there. And eventually he, he, he would, excuse me, he would either just rot or be eaten up by birds or beasts. Therefore, this place of Golgotha was just an ugly, wretched place. There's skeletal remains everywhere. There was probably bits and pieces of flesh at certain times. So it wasn't an assumed certainty that Jesus would be buried because burial wasn't a right of those condemned. Secondly, it wasn't an assumed certainty that Jesus would be buried because if you look carefully at the passage and you think about burials in general you quickly realize that nobody of significance to Jesus Christ was around at the death of Jesus. Everybody had left him. So there was no family members around. Think about that for a moment or two. Think about if that's happened to us. At our death, there's nobody there to put us in the ground. I mean, we understand that we would be dead, but people around would say, what in the dickens happened here? How humiliating. He just died. And that's it. No one wants him anywhere. 
He's just dead. His mother, Jesus, his mother, she's not there. Other members of his stepfamily, they're nowhere to be found. So there was no family around. There was no women around. They've been doing really well up till now. Perhaps they didn't say anything about the death of, or the body of Jesus because they know that their word before Pilate would essentially have been useless at this time. Not even his disciples are there. And you know, one of them promised, in fact, he promised kind of loudly and proudly, kind of pulled a Michael Jackson, I'll be there with you, right? I'll be there to the end. And Peter, who said those confident, self-assured words, he's not there. He's not there. William Barclay, this is a wonderful quote. We should stick it in our heads. It said, is it not a shame that in the hour of crisis, it is sadly too often the Peters who have sworn loyalty to Jesus with big gestures and fullness of self-confidence who disappoint us. We should know that the burial of Jesus wasn't an assumed certainty, but now we need to look, take a look at a man. His name was Joseph. If you have your worship folder, you can turn the back, and that's kind of where our points begin, Joseph's biography. Because out of almost nowhere comes somebody ready finally to do God's will before this guy was hiding. Apparently, everything he did was, was done carefully uh, for his security and secrecy. The secrecy was kind of just killing his discipleship. But now after the death of Jesus, he bravely puts himself before Pilate. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, a man from the Judean town of Arimathea. So, so who is this man? Is this the first time we've heard of him? Yes, it is. Is this the last time we'll hear of him? Yes, it will be. In other words, is this the only time in the gospels that we'll hear of Joseph? Well, all four gospels will tell him or tell about him but after that, we'll never know any more about him. So all of a sudden, he becomes very important because he is about ready to take possession of the body, the physical body of Jesus Christ. So we need to know about this God, guy, because God chose this man to bury his son. So we need to pay attention to him. So what do we know about Joe? Well, we take the whole gospel records, and let me just say this. You can read Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19, Luke 23, and you'll just put that together, and you have a complete picture of this man from Arimathea. We know that he was a rich man, Matthew 27, 57, that he was a member of the council. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And you may remember that the Sanhedrin were the men who had been responsible for going to Pilate and putting Jesus down. Point of fact, Mark tells us, Mark 15, that not only was Joseph a member of the council, but he was a prominent member of the council. We know that he was good and that he was upright, verse 50. We know that he was a disciple, Matthew's gospel, but he was a secret disciple. That was John's gospel. A disciple of Jesus secretly because John tells us he was afraid of the Jews. We also know verse 51b, and here in Luke, he was waiting for the kingdom of God, which meant he was waiting for the Messiah to come. And we also know verse 51 this time, 51a of Luke's gospel, that although he was a prominent member of the council, he had not consented to the council's decision nor their actions, meaning what? Meaning Joseph was probably either hiding when that meeting took place, and think with me for a minute, or he was just kind of missing. He was missing from the meeting. 
that did Jesus down. Because in Luke chapter 22, we read that the whole council together consented in harmony and unity against Christ. Subsequently, if they acted in harmony and unity, and we consider Luke eyes for, eye for detail and put together Joseph's secret for uh, his secret discipleship for the fear of the Jews because of Jesus, then we can be certain that this good, this rich, this upright, prominent councilman, secret disciple of Jesus, who was waiting for the kingdom of God up until the death of Christ, was quite comfortable and quite good at protecting himself, protecting his assets. And staying in the shadows. In other words, he was rich, he was upright, he was comfortable, and he continually shrank from the trouble that any wide open discipleship may have caused him. You want to think about that for a moment because you may identify with this right now. Because maybe you believe in Jesus, but up to now it's been kind of covert, it's been underground, only at home or only around the home team, but on the street. It's concealed, it's secret, it's hidden, too fearful to tell those that you may see almost every week that you belong to Christ and they should too. And you're just too careful for any wide open discipleship. So after we found out that the burial of Jesus wasn't an assumed certainty, and now we've learned a little bit more about Joseph's biography, let's move on to Joseph's bravery. Because you take this picture of this guy, then all of a sudden, based on everything we know about Joe, okay, everything we know about Joe, suddenly he has bravery that is absolutely striking. In other words, this is not the same old Joe. And by the way, I should tell you that all week long, I was hearing the name Joseph, Joseph, Joseph in my head, right? So the only time I heard Joseph, Joseph, Joseph at home, home, home was when I was in trouble, 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 right? And I'm not kidding you, my conscience was like guilty all week long. In fact, I think I called my mom on Friday just to make things, you know, am I good with you? Everything good? And she's like, yeah, you're fine. Go away. Verse 52, Luke tells us, Joseph went to Pilate, asked for Jesus' body. Mark actually tells us that he went boldly or he went bravely to Pilate. So this is not the same guy. And so the fear that had controlled him no longer controlled them. And just think about that for a moment. It's just fantastic. In Christ, the fear that used to get him down now didn't get him down anymore. This is kind of similar if you read history. What happened after the death of Christian martyrs? Did the church cave in? Absolutely not. The church that was living suddenly discovered bravery that they had never known before in Christ after the death of one of their own. Joseph, who once thought that he had too much to lose, so he kind of kept things hemmed in, is now thinking he has nothing to lose that is worth more than a proper burial for Christ. Somehow the cross of Jesus Christ has brought Joseph into the light. No more secrets. How good is that? No more secrets. Nothing to hide anymore. Joseph has no more secrets. Isn't that good if we could say that about ourselves? Something happened to him. Just like the plain old centurion. Remember him last week? Now this rich old councilman has changed. Things are different now. Something's happened to him. Things he loved before have passed away. Things he did before have passed away. Things he loved far more have come to stay. Because the disciples, by the way, who were hiding at this time, they were hiding out of fear. They know it was a dangerous time to have any identification with Jesus Christ. And here is Joseph coming out of the shadows 
And he says, Pilate, I want his body. Pilate would have it asked, why do you want his body? What do you want with his body? And the answer that he would have to give was at least this, because now I'm committed to this man. I was no good to him when he was alive, and I, and I want to do some good for him now that he's dead. And Mark tells us Pilate was surprised. Well, why was Pilate was surprised? Well, typically people could live up on a cross up for three days before they died. And now in three hours, Jesus is gone. Mark 15, 42 explains to us that Pilate set for the centurion, asked him to check it out. The centurion goes and checks it out and verifies that Jesus was most sincerely, truly dead. Now, I want you to think, now an official of Rome can verify for all of human history that Jesus Christ actually died. So then the dead body of Jesus is released to the care of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, we need to move along, but we need to answer some questions. Because these are questions many people have had throughout history, and you might have them here this morning. Question, why was it necessary for Christ to die? I mean, he was God. If he was God, couldn't there have been another way? Let me give you the answer. The reason why it was necessary for Jesus to die is that God, who is just, with respect to his justice and respect to his truth, offers satisfaction for our sin the only way that it could have been made. And that is by the actual death of Christ. The death of death through the real true blue death of Christ. God who is wiser than we are declared that the penalty of sin is to be death. That will never change. But God who is more loving than we are paid the price of his own penalty as Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ, dies our death. That's why we walk through that introduction. Because this is a big deal. Question, is that why Christ was buried exactly? If you thought of that, you know, you get 12 stars, 12 pieces of candy after the sermon. And don't ask me for that because I have none of that. But you know what I'm saying. This shows, the fact that he was buried shows that he really did die. And it shows how deep the humility of Christ was. Because you have divinity and humanity who is deity in Jesus humbling himself for our sake and he bows down to death for three days. The second person of the Godhead humbles himself to something he has no business humbling himself to but does it for us, for the Father, according to the plan. And see, we need to stick this in our head. Oh, what love is this that pays so dearly? that I, the guilty one, may go free. This is the line in the Apostles' Creed. He was buried, and he was under the power of death for three days. So that when the Scripture declares he was raised from the dead, it actually means he was raised from the dead. So that the death of Christ wasn't just an event. It was an actual state. Revelation 1.18, the ascended Christ said, Behold, I was dead. But now I am alive. And again, the Bible just hinges us to Christ. It will not let us hinge, us hinge ourselves to anything else but Jesus Christ for our standing with God. Relying on Jesus at every moment of our existence. Okay, so we've had his biography, Joseph's biography. We've made the discovery of his bravery. And we spoke a little bit about the body, the body of, that was dead, of which was Christ. And now we have Joseph moving promptly. It's there in the beginning in verse 50, 53. So having asked Pilate for the body, he got it. Now he's going to do something with it. 
And if you don't know first century history, if you don't know the Old Testament very well, none of this will be remarkable to you. But if you know this, it will be very remarkable to you. Jesus died around three o'clock on Friday. Friday was a preparation day. They had between three and six. Okay, any good Jew had between three, or excuse me, any good Jew had until six, but Joseph had between three and six, 6 p.m. sundown to get things done. So he has less than three hours to take Jesus from a cross, give him a proper burial, and put him in a tomb. Verse 53a, he took the body down. Would you like to be there when that happened? Nails going out, the crown of thorns, all the bits and pieces of the horrible things that men did to them in their sinfulness. Verse 53b, Joseph would have had to wrap Jesus in a linen cloth. Mark tells us that Joseph had to purchase a linen cloth. The body would have been washed. The gospel writers don't tell us that because I think they probably assume that the Jews who would read this would understand that a death like that required a body washing before they would have been embalmed. Here's where you need to pay attention. John's gospel tells us that the body was wrapped together in 75 pounds of spices. Then the body was placed in a newly cut tomb. A stone was rolled in front of the entrance and then he rushed home all before 6 p.m. He did all that in essentially less than three hours. So we have to understand what is happening here. And this is the point. Joseph is not the same. I mean, this is quick. This is fast. Before Jesus, Joseph was calculated. He was in the shadows. He was slow. He was careful. He's secret. Now he's fast and furious. Get this done. Get the body. Get the linen. Wrap the body. Don't forget the spices. Money is not an issue. The new tomb that Matthew tells us belonged to Joseph. Jesus can have it. I think this is right. I think this is correct. Sometimes wealthy people don't move like this. Giving up stuff they carefully, perhaps slowly secure, giving up that stuff so quickly. And then I said to myself, can you imagine if we move this fast on behalf of Jesus Christ much of the time? Joseph of Arimathea does far more for Jesus in less than three hours than he had done for Jesus at whatever point he came to Jesus in the three years of his earthly ministry. You get that? More in three hours than he does in three years. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Joseph was alone. He didn't act alone. He was wealthy. He probably had servants, so he had help. In fact, he had the help of a guy named Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Some of you in Bible class in school probably remember Nicodemus. John 19, 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. So we got two nighttime followers, right? Birds of a feather flock together. Two peas in a pod. They both had the same issues. No wonder they hung out together. There was a man whose name was Nicodemus who went to Jesus by night, in darkness, secretly, quietly, so no one would have to know. He asked his questions. He got his answers about how to be born again. So I want to piece this picture together of these two men who hung out together. Both were afraid. Both were good men. Both were prominent men. Both were wealthy men. Both believed in Jesus, but both lacked courage to let everybody, to let anybody know where they stand with Jesus Christ. But at his death, they finally begin to write, ask the right questions. When Jesus was alive, they perhaps lived under the maxim that said, what is the very least I could do for Jesus and still get by? 
right? What is the very least I could do for Jesus and still get by? Maybe that was their little maxim they lived under. But no, no longer, not in his death, now in his death on the cross, they finally asked the right question. What is the very most I can do for Jesus? What a wonderful question. We should ask ourselves that frequently. What is the very most I can do for Jesus? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The, the mechanism of Christian courage. Listen carefully. The mechanism of Christian courage is not to look at ourselves in the mirror and talk, but to rely on the transforming power of the cross. That's what's happening here. You had a guy who was just a weakling. You had another guy who was just a weakling. The ladies are going, okay, tell me something new. No, just kidding. Two guys. I'm just saying that because some of you look kind of pitiful this morning, but that's, I'm just kidding. You had two guys that were just, right? And all of a sudden, a dead man who happens to be the son of God on a cross changes their whole life. And in the providence of God and for an apologetic defense that these two men could have never understood at this time, they actually do what they should. They did it. So they divide their labors. Joseph with the linen, Nicodemus with the spices, and they do their very best for Jesus. They do their very best for Jesus, a lesson to us all. And so Luke and Matthew and Mark begin to tell us about the presence of these women. Verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Verse 56, and they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. And this is where the skeptic comes in. Listen, and we thank God for the skeptics. They keep us sharp. They keep us in the Bible. We pray for skeptics. We should find them, talk to them, and tell them about the love of Christ. Nevertheless, the skeptics who have all these gospels laid out before them, trying to find the holes in the story, they find a problem, quite frankly. And the problem is this. Mark's gospel tells us that, at, that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where they had put him. Luke, as we read, verses 55 and 56, said that they followed Joseph and they saw where the body was that had the body of Christ and where they laid it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. John, however, tells us that, that Nicodemus took 75 pounds of spices. Nicodemus, not the ladies. He mixed them with the linen cloth, cloth and, and then started embalming the body. And again, Luke tells us that the women saw the body, they saw the tomb, they went home, prepared spices and perfume. So if you are thinking and still listening, that doesn't add up. So what are we supposed to do as we kind of piece this all together? Well, this is what the commentaries said. I don't like it, but I'm going to tell you what they said. They said that the ladies didn't see everything. How dare they, right? <laughs> they went home. They prepared the spices based on what they didn't see. Maybe, but I don't really like that. I mean, if you're just thinking about things plainly, these women saw these men two prominent men who had never did this before. I mean, this kind of task was always reserved for either servants or woman, the embalming of a body. So the ladies saw this kind of mess and they said, oh my, <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow to fix things up. I mean, doesn't that make a little bit of sense? It kind of does to me. Now, I know we're going to have to wait for heaven to find out the answer, but the point is, is that Jesus Christ was dead and that Jesus Christ received a proper burial. And that's the story. But we can't go home yet. 
So what do these things mean, right? You've you got to say, what is God trying to tell us now? So I went to God, I went to Luther, I went to Calvin, I went to a couple of Puritans. And here's just kind of the things that I learned this week from this story. The first thing that I learned this week is that the good news reaches both the rich and the poor. What's the dominant theme in Luke's gospel? Jesus has come for the least, the last, and the lowest. But if we kind of go too far there, we may be tempted to turn this into kind of a social crusade that says if you have lots of money and you have nice things, you have no chance with Christ. You know, something's wrong, you're not giving up enough, and so on. But of course, that isn't true. And the Bible reminds us that God is no respecter of persons. He can save a scandalous woman at the well in John 4. She had way too many lovers. And God saved her. And God can save a wealthy secret of man with a secret love that needed to be finally brought out into the open. So this story reminds me that God and the good news reaches both the rich and the poor. Secondly, the story reminds me that God's providence is always at work. He was even preparing Joseph for this time. This is really encouraging for me. In Joseph's secrecy, because he was secret. God did not make Joseph secret. Joseph was secret because it was his choice, his life, and that is how things laid for a time. But his steps were so ordered by God so that even in our frailty, this is lovely. Even my, my, I'll just make it personal. In my frailty, my secrecy, my ineffectiveness, my disabilities, my flat out failures, God is still in the mystery of his providence going to work his holy purposes out for the good, for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And it was God's purpose that the Joe, who was so often got it wrong, would finally be the Joe who got it right. And this is God at work in us the same way. We, loved ones, will finally get it right, as the story tells us. Third, the story reminds me to keep my eye on Christ even in the Old Testament. Specifically, Isaiah 53, 53, 9. Listen to what Isaiah wrote. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich with his death. And with the rich, with his death. You see, and you need to know this, most tombs at this time were reused. So once the body in the tomb decomposed, say after about a year, year and a half, the bodies were taken out and essentially cremated of kind of a burning field for bodies so that the tomb could be reused again and again. But not for the rich. The rich did not reuse the tombs. Thank God for the snootiness of the rich because they defend the faith with their snootiness. The body of Christ was in a tomb that no one would touch unless something else happened, which we'll find out next week what happened. So then I thought to myself, okay, that's good news, but let's say you're like super poor, right? Let's say you're so poor. What does this tell me? Well, it tells me that Jesus had nothing on this earth. It was just nobody, nothing. But what did the providence of God do? Well, it just tells us that no matter who we may be, if we have a Father in heaven, He's going to take care of us even to the very end, no matter what we do or do not do. Fourth lesson, there's only two more. Another lesson is that 
Not everyone arrives as quickly as others to the place of brave discipleship and evangelism. Right? Not everyone arrives as quickly as others to the place of brave discipleship and evangelism. God made us different by dent of personality. We should cherish our differences. Some of us are just flat out less confident. We're just less bold by nature. Joseph teaches us patience with ourselves if we're slow to be brave for Christ. And he teaches us to be patient with others if they are slow to be brave for Christ. Why? Because our impatience with others' lack of bravery in this matter can all too easily be something we use to kind of augment ourselves and move us up the notch or two on the chart that says, look how much better I am at this than they are. And if we have those charts, we need to throw them away. Joseph reminds us that we move at different settings and we should be glad about this. However, and this is where I close, this is also a reminder to us that no one, no matter who they may be, no one can remain a secret disciple forever. No one can remain a secret disciple forever because conditions will come to us. We will always have to take our stand. God's providence will make us take our stand. All the places where God puts us will offer us moments when we must take our stand. Joseph may have thought that he could be undercover for Jesus forever, right? Undercover for Jesus forever, saving face, saving his station in life. But the cross of Jesus Christ was too much for him. When he saw it, it did him in for all the right reasons. You remember what Simeon said way back in Luke chapter 3? He said this about the Christ child. This child, Jesus, is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Judas's heart was revealed. Pilate's heart was revealed. Peter's heart was revealed. Joseph's heart was revealed. His true heart revealed a faith that was on track. And it revealed itself in a question. What did Joseph say to Pilate? Just give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. So the only question I have for you this morning, if you're a man or a woman, a young lady or a young gentleman, is a simple question and it's an eternal question. Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? If your answer is yes, good, but you're only halfway there. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Because if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead as your substitute, and if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and Master, you will be saved. If you don't do that, you won't be. And for 2,000 years, Christianity's only authorized message, for 2,000 years, Christianity's only authorized message, for 2,000 years, Christianity's only authorized message is that you must be saved. And in Jesus Christ, who was dead and who was buried, but now is risen, you may find and confess this salvation. So I would beg you, I would beseech you by the mercy of God. Be saved. Be saved this way, which is the only way to God. 
Let's bow our heads and I sure thank you for your attention this morning. Our God and Father, the death of Jesus Christ, death of Jesus Christ has proven stronger than sin, stronger than death. It has completely satisfied your just wrath that is coming to this world where many are not prepared. We humble ourselves, Father, in the beauty of the story. I'm sure many of us can find a Joseph in us. The dangers of wide open discipleship would cripple us and frighten us and keep us at bay and keep us at home. All of a sudden, Father, the wonder and the glory of your cross is set before our face. And we do, Father, what must be done in the name of Jesus Christ and in his power alone. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many. This child is the child that can reveal our true heart. Whether our faith is genuine, whether our faith is imitation. Whether we say to the world, you can have it, give me Jesus. So Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Everyone this morning within the sound of my voice take their stand with Jesus his way. Lord, our hearts are along lines of Luther who said that Jesus, you are my righteousness and you are on that cross my sin. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be the abiding portion to all who believe both now and and forevermore. Amen.